Welcome to Leaders Upgraded, the place where people who want to upgrade and fast track their career, their life, and their leadership journey tend to gather. I am your host, Tanvi Gautam, and I shall be speaking to the top 10% of the world's leading authors, CEOs, and thinkers to bring you some of the best and brilliant ideas to fast track your way to success. Would you like an upgrade? Let's do this. I'm delighted to welcome Navi Raju on our uh, show today. He's an innovation and leadership strategist, also the author of Frugal Innovation, How to Do Better with Less. So welcome, Navi. Thanks for having me. I have been reading your book, and, you know, I have to say, this is going to start becoming mandatory reading in all the work that I'm doing with my clients. It's such an exposition of the way companies have to start thinking about leadership and markets and creativity and innovation in the organizations. When I first came across your work, it was in the context of Jugard innovation. Of course, was focused more on you know, emerging markets and the Indian economy and to do more with less in that context. And now we have frugal innovation, which seems to be a more global book with the case studies and stories that you share in there. So for those people who are uninitiated into this conversation, is frugal innovation? Why should they be paying attention to this idea? Uh, frugal innovation, in a nutshell, is, as the expression indicates, it's about innovating frugally. Uh, that is essentially, uh, instead of spending billions of dollars R&D, is to find a frugal uh, mechanism um, with new products and services. The first aspect of frugal innovation is how do you, you know, change your thinking that you need a lot of big budgets, big R&D centers to innovate, and realize that actually you can innovate in a very you know, economical way. The second aspect of it is how do you also come up with products and services that are more affordable and yet of good quality? And this is becoming a global requirement because only in emerging markets, but even in the Western economies, since the economic recession, consumers are actually looking for products that deliver better value for the limited money they have. So frugal innovation is about, you know, innovating cheaply, but also coming up with products that are affordable and of good quality. And I think that, you know, there's a term in the book that you use called the GAFA companies, right? The Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. And these are certainly companies that are the way business is done. We are looking at companies like Uber and the, the sharing economy, right, is really on its way to getting established as a norm of life rather than an aberration. So it's interesting to me that you talked about products that are affordable because there is a segment of the population which is a brand agnostic in some senses because they're looking more for value than anything else. So what I'm hearing you say is do more with less, but also create products that are cheaper and not as expensive. And I think that the times that we live in, that's something we really need because there's a resource crunch everywhere. Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, you're right. I mean, oftentimes, you know, Silicon Valley in the U.S., of course, and, uh, you know, we always think about the first world and the third world. And, you know, what we don't realize is that there is a bottom of the pyramid, first of all, in every developed country. For example, in Europe, there are 50 million Europeans who are considered as poor 
or relatively poor. And in the U.S., for example, you have 70 million Americans who are underbanked. They don't have access to the kind of average banking services that we take for granted. So I think, you know, there is this myth that developed countries are rich countries where everybody, you know, is rich, which is not true. Uh, maybe the rich are getting richer for sure, but the middle class is feeling the squeeze. And research after research shows, for example, in the U.S. that for the first time since World War II, middle class consumers are afraid that, you know, the children will be financially worse off than their generation. So I think the, 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 the people are becoming more cost conscious. I think that's something that is reality in the Western world. But beyond that, I think that there's another more important phenomenon. So that the first phenomenon is that if you don't have money, you become value conscious, right? You want value for money. That's well known, you know, for eons. But people are also becoming values conscious. As, you know, according to Nielsen, 55% consumers want to buy from brands that are socially and environmentally responsible. And they also found that uh, two-thirds of uh, young people want to work for companies uh, that are socially and environmentally responsible. That means that these are consumers that are not just consumers, they are becoming responsible citizens. They want to consume and work for companies that do more with less in terms of you know, creating more economic and social value in an environmentally responsible way. Right. So that's, that's an interesting shift right there. So what is your advice on how hierarchical companies, command and control companies, organizations move very slowly given their size, adapt to this idea of uh, frugal innovation and the surrounding and relationships they will have to establish in order to get on with frugal innovation? Sure. So let's pick let's pick G as a as a good example. So I'm gonna just you know cite two big initiatives uh, they embarked upon, which really illustrate how they are trying to do more with less. Uh, the first one is that uh, G is applying the principles of lean startup, which is you know coming from Silicon Valley, which is essentially to compress the time to market. You know, so essentially be able to put new products in the marketplace very quickly. And they launched this initiative called Fast Works. Essentially, a, a program that aims to close deals 50% faster and launch new products minimum 30% faster. So the idea is essentially to create a culture of organization that is very nimble, agile, and they have over you know 300 projects they have implemented using this approach, which is phenomenal because if you imagine GE working in you know very complex uh, you know industries like aerospace, medical devices, etc they are still able now today to launch new products in a few months instead of, you know, many years. So that shows that even elephant can dance. And that's, you know, a great example of frugality in terms of saving on time because time is the most valuable and scarce resource. So they are able to do more at less time. Another interesting project, and this is a very brand new initiative that is just was, you know, being announced. They are actually in the healthcare space, G is actually creating a product line, which they call sustainable healthcare solutions. And interestingly, they call them also view products and super value products. So this is essentially a product line of medical devices that will be designed from scratch for a global market segment, which is looking for products, you know, like CT scanners and whatnot 
that are they don't have all the bells and whistles that we may find, you know. And that's important because, you know, I don't know if you realize, but GE is like an engineering-driven company. That's Thomas Edison, right? So these are the guys who, you know, love reinventing the wheel and coming up with very complex solutions. But here is GE trying to come up with, you know, relatively simpler to use and more affordable solutions for the masses. Yeah. That's, it's very interesting because I think in some ways that's changing the paradigm where we used to think if it's more complicated and, you know, has more features and more is better. But now we're saying, no, you know, we really need to become lean. And how quickly can we move? Because, you know, by the time you might be designing your amazing dream product, somebody else might have launched. And so what are you going to do then? So it's kind of also a little bit of a, you know, speed to market phenomena. But I wanted you to share the story of Acor as well. And the reason is that, you know, the story of GE sounds like system in transformation and work. And I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit more as we go on in the podcast. But the story of Acor was interesting to me because you, the story is of a person who's trying to transform an organization. And I, I really think that a lot of, executives who are listening to this podcast need to uh, hear how the ownership that is taken by leaders and executives and organizations becomes so central to this transformation conversation. So if you could share a little bit about that story. Sure. So Ecor is one of the world's leading hotel chain and they are facing, as you know, competition from, you know, kind of two ends in a way. On one hand, you have people like Expedia.com who are kind of, you know, using the whole reservation, hotel reservation space, and that's on the distribution side. But then Accor is also facing competition from the sharing economy players like Airbnb. And so you can see how quickly these, you know, nimble digital rivals are stealing market share from Accor. So they realize that if they really want to compete and win in today's, you know, digital knowledge economy, they actually have to team up and partner with nimble players. And nimble players would be startups, could be small, medium businesses. And the idea is essentially to gain new perspectives, new ideas, new solutions from the outside world. And to make that happen, they have a unique title in the world, in my opinion. His title is a Senior Vice President for Entrepreneurship Advocacy. So what is right. And so what he's trying to do is essentially to, to connect with small, medium businesses and startups, they have very innovative solutions benefit the company in terms of, you know, connected hotels, you know, digitally connected hotels or in the area of, you know, city and so on and so forth. So he has essentially this unbelievable kind of initiative, which is called a speed dating. So essentially, you know, a couple of times a year, he organizes these speed dating kind of programs, some promising startups and SMEs pitch their solutions. And then they will have uh, a senior executives from the company, Accor Group, or some of the managers of the franchise hotels who at the end of the, the speed dating day could say, hey, this particular startup, I'm really interested in working with them. So that very day, they sign a deal with that company, that startup, and then they start piloting a new initiative, right? So, so that's essentially to say, you know, if we cannot beat the digital 
players, let's join forces with them. You know, I was working with a client of mine, and you know, they are a hundred years, more than a hundred years old company, and we were having this conversation. The group was like, you know, we need to be more like a startup, and you know, but we don't have startup capabilities. And so, you know, one of the solutions that emerged from the discussion that day was, you know, they wanted to implement something called adopt a startup. Unlike what you're saying about Acor, where you know this there's a speed dating model, the suggestion was to send executives into the startups for sabbatical, so that they kind of uh, start imbibing some of those the value system and the worldview and the you know mental models of being in a startup and to bring them back uh, to the organization. Yes, I think the the idea is essentially to expose, and I think you bring up a good point, right? Is that a lot of companies I know, even today, I met with a large European company which came to Silicon Valley because they are interested in quote unquote partnering with startups. But what happens is that generally, it's called open innovation, right? It's a concept that is 15 years old, which is you know how can large companies open up and innovate with you know nimble startups. The problem is that, as I say in my book, is that when you open up First of all, two key problems. One is that, you know, the moment you start working with startups, you expose to them the bureaucracy of your company, right? So if it takes like, you know, one month to cut a deal with a startup, they get bored. They will go to another company, right? So, so the first thing happens is that large companies are not designed in terms of agility to quickly establish relationships and start collaborating with startups. That's one weakness they have. The second limitation is that when they team up with startups, uh, don't change the culture, right? right? They just remain who they are and they just are looking for a particular technology, right? That the startup can bring to the table, but that doesn't fundamentally change the business model, or as you said, the, the mental model of the large company. So I think, yes, I think Accor and several companies like Air Liquid, Air Liquid and even BNP Paribas that I talk about in my book, what they are doing is they are actually reaching out to these frugal innovators in the startup world not only to get access to new technologies or new products, but actually get access to new perspectives and new mindsets as well. I think that is how open innovation can really you know, bring its, its maximum benefit if companies team up to shift and broaden the mindset instead of reinforcing what they already know. There's this line in the book that which said, you know, companies practice open innovation today mainly to become more efficient doing better what they already do rather than become more adaptable and agile. And I, I, I have found that in my experience to be very true. I mean, you can snap up a whole bunch of companies in the market because you think, you know, that's the next big thing or, you know, partner with them because it's, well, it's the you know, cool thing to do. But if at the heart of it, you're not changing your approach and your DNA stays what it is, you're not likely to reap any benefits from it. And so, you know, this is a good segue into that part of the conversation, which is, well, what is the mental model of a leader wanting to be involved in open innovation or who believes that the time for frugal innovation has come? You know, what would you say are the top three competencies or skills or abilities that such a leader should have if they really want to, you know, leverage the potential uh, of this open innovation? Sure. The first most important practice is that you have to create, create a sense of urgency. And I think they always say necessity is the mother of invention. So 
people don't innovate unless, you know, put it bluntly, fire under the ass, right? So, so you have to create that fire. And there are a couple of ways to do that. I call them positive constraints. So you need to create a set of constraints that are not so stifling that people end up, you know, panicking and switch to survival mode. So it has to be at the right level. So that's one way you can do is essentially create a very aggressive, you know, target and a big hairy goal. That's if you want to change the whole company. But you can also, you know, create constraints by setting a target for helping a product that has never been done in the company, right? right? So the example I give with the, the car maker Renault, the French car maker Renault, because they actually, 2005, they launched a car at the price of 6,000 euros, which required their you know, leaders in the company, engineers and business people, to completely shift their perspective on how to make a car, how to build a car, how to design a car, and they pulled it off. You know, it took a lot of efforts, but they made it. Again, they, you know, set the bar not high, but kind of low in a way by saying, you know, go ahead and you guys figure out how you'll develop a car at $5,000. They pulled it off. So these are the two things companies, executive leaders can do, which is, you know, to set some kind of aggressive, you know, targets in terms of time and say, within five, 10 years, we are going to completely change the company in more frugal. Can also say, well, let's create a product that will have such a very bold and frugal price point that sounds mission impossible. And that will essentially create a sense of, you know, urgency and unleash the, you know, the creativity of people in the company. And so that's, that's kind of setting the, the context for, for what the company would like to do. Because you've talked to so many of these leaders, you've seen them in action. In terms of the, the mindset, right? How these leaders think. And in terms of how they ought to be thinking. Did you notice anything that you felt stood out for them? Because, you know, leaders tend to stick to a leadership style that probably made them very successful in the past. But, you know, as it's famously said, what got you here won't get you there. You know, leaders were born in an era of uh, functional uh, excellence and, you know, ROI of, of looking at far more mechanical uh, parameters than the VUCA world that we operate in. But if they focus too much of that, they're probably missing out on the opportunity. And, you know, you have also done some work with leaders in your book, From Smart to Wise, which is acting and leading with wisdom. So I was hoping you could bring together what you were noticing in From Smart to Wise. What you observed here in, in, in Frugal Innovation to see, what was standing out for you for these, what, what these leaders were doing? Sure, absolutely. First of all, one important data point that will really interest you. The average age of the 50 companies profiled in my book is 68 years old. And the combined life experience of these companies, I think it's about 7,000 years. So my point is that, you know, I deliberately with my co-author picked companies, you know, whether it's a GE or Renault and Unilever, which have been around the block for a long time. And I start with that data point because that means that a leader who joins a company only a few years ago needs to have the courage to say, you know what? 
we will stick to the core values of the company, but uh, many other things we may have to change. For example, you know, we may have a business model that was very profitable for decades, but we have to let it go. We need to kind of unlearn a lot of things that, you know, benefited us and, you know, relearn new tricks, which brings to the kind of quality of leaders is this kind of audacity, you know, this kind of moral courage to do the right thing. And they're not looking for approval, you know, from either the board or from shareholders because they think long-term. They think so long-term that actually both that what they are seeding today as, you know, the kind of the, the grains of this change may bear fruit long after they are gone, but that's okay for them. Uh, thinking very short-term about how can it benefit me as, as a person, but how can it benefit the company and potentially the society as well. So I think this, this wisdom that I see in these uh, frugal CEOs, as they call them, is to really think long-term, have a larger sense of purpose, and really be, you know, kind of courageous. Now, having said that, I want to kind of very quickly talk about the other quality, which is important. They delegate like hell. They don't try to micromanage. Either appoint some executives who then implement the vision, or they create an environment that is conducive for more kind of, you know, bottom-up, grassroots innovation to flourish. But either way, these are not megalomaniac, powerful CEOs. Are have great communication skills that allow them to communicate, inspire, and win over more stakeholders, you know, to join the journey. So it's somewhere it's the mindset of having open leaders who are who are not afraid to share their power. It's not power over people, but rather power in people. You know, I'm really curious to ask you this question because of focus on innovation. I have always maintained that diversity is an innovation matrix. We tend to kind of get lost in the conversation on the numbers and the percentages of people at the board level or the minority representation, which is just one way to think about it. But ultimately, the diversity drives innovation, and that's why it deserves uh, our attention. And you have to lead and collaborate with people who think, feel, and act very differently from you. In your book, you have talked about collaborating for, with competitors, uh, you know, something that normally is not even a part of our mental model. What is, wh what is your advice on how to do that more effectively? Why is it that at one end, I hear companies talking about innovation is so central and important to us. And at the other hand, the diversity agenda just doesn't get the attention it deserves. Yeah, I, I think the, it's a very good point. And I think uh, in my book, I give uh, several examples of companies that actually team up with the uh, a diverse set of partners. For example, uh, G coming back to them, G Healthcare now is partnering a lot with NGOs or government agencies. These are kind of stakeholders they never dealt with before, right? So they used to deal with hospitals or, you know, or, or private sector kind of entities. These are, there's a diverse set of partners they have to now learn to team up with and collaborate with. And, and, and it's, it's not easy, but I think what again happens, like going back to the discussion we had about leadership, is that if, if you can create a shared sense of purpose, a larger kind of noble cause, then you can transcend, if you like, the, the kind of the individual int of these different members who come together. Because 
one of the reasons diversity doesn't work is because, as you said, there's a divergent interest, right? Which is good, but can also be bad because then it's very difficult to get everybody to agree on anything. So this is where I think leadership is important. If you can create this larger sense of purpose for this eclectic mix of partners, then they're able to transcend, you know, their kind of self-interest or their divergent kind of backgrounds to really contribute to a shared kind of goal. So that's what I have seen again and again is that, you know, there's this Hindi uh, expression says one plus one equal 11. Diversity only works if on the one hand you uh, respect and even, you know, enhance the individuality of different members in a team, but you have to do that in a very a kind of coherent and cozy way so that uh, one plus one ends up being, you know, 11 and not two or three. Yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic point. Yeah, can I, can, I, can I give one example? I mean, this brings up another. See, diversity is not just about, you know, I mean, sex or, you know, skin color, right? Diversity for me is all about diverse points of view, right? Uh, and and this is actually, you know, I can share this personal perspective, but I'm just reading this book, Ram by Devdat Patnaik, who is an author from India I respect a lot. And it really says that, you know, the shift from smart leadership to wise leadership happens is when a person is able to accommodate multiple points of view in his mind and integrate them, right? right? So that is the supreme form of intelligence, right? Which is the ability to have two conflicting viewpoints in your mind and still try to synergize them. And I think that's why I feel like, you know, in the VUCA that you talked about earlier, no single point of view that can win the day, right? So you need to kind of really say, I have my point of view, but I'm not. So you need to have a sense of vulnerability and humility to say, but maybe I'm wrong, right? So maybe it's a wise thing for me to reach out to people who may think differently Maybe by having this different perspective, maybe come to, you know, a, a solution that will be more resilient, right, and more robust to survive in a VUCA world than if I try to simply, you know, impose my point of view on everyone else. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you talk talk about Devdas' work and that concept. There's another book, if you haven't read it, which is in kind of the same genre, it's called The Opposable Mind. Yes. And, you know, it's... It, it is exactly that, to take two conflicting ideas. I, th- I think I, I would say that a very important for leaders in the new world is to recognize that they don't have all the answers. And when they don't have all the answers, then you, they have to be able to, you know, get the best from the people around them. And, and that doesn't mean that they will necessarily agree, but that ability to step back and give each idea equal consideration is, I think, a very, very important competency. As we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, given all the work you've been doing through the years with organizations, also so writing the book, as well as your speaking, one thing you could change about the way leaders are leading today, what would that one thing be and why? I know I put you on a little bit of a spot there because there are probably so many things you would wish companies and leaders would do differently. But is, is there like a, you know, 
there's one thing that you keep saying, why do they do it this way? You know, they really need to be doing it differently, but they don't seem to get it. What would sure. that thing be? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I already knew what I'm going to say, but I was trying to say it in a very formal way. And, and I think what I'd like to see is leaders being driven by hope and, and, and optimism. And so that means it's okay to, you know, to be more playful. And I think I always say that, you know, the, the, the term ingenuity almost rhymes with the idea of, you know, being ingenuous, which is also about being innocent. I think move up in the corporate ladder, we are expected to know everything. And, and, and people are frightened that they will, you know, find themselves as leaders in a situation where they don't have answers to a particular, you know, situation. And I think, you know, when I look at kids, I sometimes feel like they can teach us so much about leadership because they have the single most important quality to ask, why not? So I think that's one thing I would like to see leaders, you know, basically manifest is a sense of curiosity and, and, and wonderment, which I feel is lost as you move up the ladder because you become more jaded, you become more experienced. So I think, I think innocence is the new source of complete advantage and experience becomes the new burden that you have to unload if you really want to, you know, succeed in the, the VUCA world. Great. Thank you so much, Navi, for your time. I really learned a lot reading your book, and I very highly recommend it to anyone who is trying to understand the variety of ways in which leaders and companies are shifting the way they have led their people and themselves. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for tuning into the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did and you were able to take away some ideas to start using in your own career as well as your leadership journey. That concludes this episode of Leaders Upgraded. But wait, your journey is just getting started. Go to www.leadersupgraded.com for more insights, more inspiration and more tools to continue the journey. And if you have someone who you would like to nominate for the podcast or a particular topic you'd like us to cover, then also visit www.leadersupgraded.com and let us know. If you like this episode, please do share it. Please do subscribe to the podcast. And I look forward to continued upgrade with you. Take care.